anything you look at, you have to show how it is indispensable to the current world. And you also have to show how it is the future of the company. Redis is absolutely indispensable for many companies. It's part of the mission critical applications that it powers, right? But it's also part of the future because the future is intelligent applications. Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. You don't look like you're in your uh, normal setup there, Sam. Where are you? I'm actually on a spontaneous trip to Wales at the moment, so I'm rocking my uh, my mobile setup, putting my Max Studio microphones to the test. Uh, I'll come a bit closer just in case the audio's a bit crap. It's all right, we'll make up for it with mine. But anyway, um, today on the show we have Tamir Rashid, who is the Chief Business Officer of Redis. You heard us right, Redis. So if you uh, don't know who Redis are, well, then shame on you. Uh, only joking. <laughs> They're an open source uh, data store, let's say, a cache used by pretty much anyone you can shake a stick at. In this episode, Tamur gives us a whistle-stop tour of coming from a computer science degree to AWS, Microsoft, and eventually a C-suite member at Redis. We take a trip down memory lane as he saw the very beginnings of AWS and being in meetings with Jeff Bezos and Andy Jesse through to his role at Microsoft and their desire to reshape their culture. Once again, there's a plethora of reading materials. So if you want to dive a little deeper into things that have helped Tamir through his career, then there'll be affiliate links in the description of this episode. Uh, just before we get into it, that Tech Show Live is shaping up to be a very exciting event. And we'll have more news on that when things are sort of more confirmed. But I'll, uh, I'll tell you this much. You might want to register your interest over at thattech.show because tickets might not be as readily available as you think. Oh, that is exciting. So make sure you give us a subscribe on YouTube. Um, do you hit the bell? I think you hit a bell, right? That's a YouTube thing that people say. Yeah, because then you get notified when we do stuff. But we're nearly at 1,000 subscribers, which is a big milestone for us. And uh, with all that out of the way, here's Tamir Rashid. So hi, my name is Timur Rashid. I am the Chief Business Development Officer at Redis. I've been with the company for a little over a year and a half. And my primary role and responsibility within the company is to help the company identify new market segments to not only take the company, but also the technology of Redis into. And these days, my primary focus is the artificial intelligence and machine learning market. Great. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Timur. I mean, I'm thrilled stoked in fact to have you on the show um it's a really uh, it's it's really great to have somebody uh, from from redis joining us so that we can have a and especially so high up as well <laughs> yeah well it's a pleasure to be here chris i'm really excited to be chatting with both you and sam so you joined redis just over a year ago or a year and a half ago you said um what was it that took you to redis yeah that's a great question so uh, prior to redis um i had spent about 3 years at microsoft where i led the global customer success teams for Azure. And uh, during my time there, I actually had a lot of interaction with the founders of Redis, uh, Ofer Bengal and Yiftak Shulman, in basically bringing the Redis partnership over to Microsoft. And during that time, I you know, got to know them, got to learn more about their technology, even though uh, when I spent 10 years at AWS prior to Microsoft, I had a lot of exposure to the technology. 
And so during my time there at Microsoft, I just saw the immense value that a technology like Redis provides. It's used by startups. It's used by small, medium-sized businesses, as well as large enterprises. And the use cases that Redis enabled, it's so, so ubiquitous. It's so versatile as a technology that we saw it as part of digital transformation. We saw it as part of, uh, uh, of app modernization. And so when I was sort of at the end of my third year at Microsoft, I was largely figuring out what I wanted to do next. And, you know, Ofer and I talked about some of the market opportunities there. And he said, hey, well, why don't you uh, come and join us and help us get into the machine learning market? And so I saw that as an exciting challenge. You know, I'm a, I'm a builder by nature. I spent 10 years at Amazon Web Services, essentially building the business over there when it was a very small startup within, within Amazon. And so I'm going back to my roots as a business development professional and a very exciting opportunity to create a new market for the company and the technology. That's really cool. So, I mean, there's quite a lot to unpack there, I guess, because, I mean, you've, you've hit several brands along the way there. You've got, what, Amazon, you've got Microsoft, and now you're at Redis. I'm sure there's going to be plenty more, so I want to pick into that a little bit. But also, like, the, the, the business development and AI for Redis, that sounds really cool. So, I mean, let's go back a bit then. So, you've got 10 years, 10 years in Amazon. So, what led up to that, actually? Yeah, you know, it might be a good idea to sort of talk a little bit about my origin. And so, you know, uh, studied at the University of Texas at Austin. And so I got my bachelor's degree there in computer science. In fact, I didn't start off as a computer science major. I actually started off as a pre-med major. And um, lo and behold, after two years of doing the standard pre-med requirements, organic chemistry basically made me realize that I better go into computer science, right? So I ended up... (laughs) I ended up uh, embarking in computer science. It was a great journey. Uh, graduated. And when I actually left the uh, left University of Texas, it was a very tough time in the market. It was just back in 2001. And as you can imagine, we were just sort of coming out of the dot-com bust. And I landed a job in uh, Siebel Systems out in California. And if you recall, Siebel Systems was one of the pioneers in CRM software. And so I spent about three years there. Uh, came to Oracle via the acquisition. And during my six years there, I had a variety of roles. And it, it was it was so awesome that I got exposure to engineering, product management, and then business development. And so right at around 2008, you know, when software as a service was a very big thing, a good friend of mine actually reached out to me. He said, hey, I'm here at uh, Amazon Web Services, and we're doing this interesting thing called cloud computing. Why don't you come up and, and, and give it a try? And so I uh, went through the rounds of interviews. I actually came into Seattle for the first time on a very sunny day. And my wife and I said, hey, you know what? The weather's beautiful here. Let's just move here. And so we moved up to Seattle. I joined Amazon Web Services as their fourth sales rep uh, back in 2008. I bet it was raining that afternoon, though, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was the worst winter in December. And so my wife and I had a little bit of a shock, right? But, you know, you sort of fast forward, you know, we moved uh, in 2008. I joined AWS. As a, it was a very exciting time for me because I always had this desire to be part of a startup. And AWS back then was a startup within Amazon. Mm. A very exciting time. Uh, spent 10 years there uh, leading the business development function. Uh, basically, all new products that Amazon Web Services built. My team was uh, responsible for the overall go-to-market. 
and what we largely call the new product incubation phase. And so we were tasked with finding early adopters, uh, getting the products to a certain revenue threshold, and then enabling the global sales team to be able to sell that technology. So how, how long had AWS been around um, in 2008 then? Because obviously it's a startup, but there'd been some prior work, I guess, to get all of the, uh, the basic components of AWS together, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the origins of sort of the technology and the overall process around Amazon Web Services started off in 2004. And uh, officially, AWS became a subsidiary of Amazon back in late 2006. And so my joining in 2008 was literally just a year and a half after AWS established itself as a business unit within Amazon. So you joined pretty pretty early on, and it must have been a pretty exciting time. I joined pretty early on. I joined pretty early on, and you know, not many people know, we were um, all sitting in what they call the Pacific Medical Center. So it was actually the uh, Amazon headquarters up in uh, Beacon Hill here in Seattle. And you would, you would look at it and you would say, hey, that looks like a hospital. And lo and behold, it was a hospital. But uh, the reality was is the, the foundation of AWS, when you look at it as a business, uh, started off in that building, right? And so our QBRs, so our quarterly business reviews, in fact, uh, we actually had Jeff join some of them early on. So he was very, very interested in seeing how this you know, emerging business would eventually uh, become a very significant part of Amazon. So that early time, the early exposure with Jeff, um, Andy Jassy, Adam Selepsky, uh was a very fruitful experience for me. I remember people pointing to that building and say we used to work in there because I did a stint at uh, Amazon as well, but uh, not AWS. I was in the, the instant video team. I mean, that, that must have been such an experience, though, to see that build over over a period of 10 years because it is now ubiquitous, really. I mean, obviously, you went to, to Microsoft, and we can talk more about that, but it's the, um, it's the default for most people to go to AWS for, for you know, spinning up anything, a server, whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, because you had multiple disruptions going on, and I think the timing of what they brought to market was something that developers needed, right? You know, access to infrastructure was... Number one, costly. Number two, a very specialized skill. And you had all these developers that were just trying to accelerate application development. And they just, you know, they had to wait in line to get access to infrastructure. And because of web services APIs and the ability that Amazon had such great experience managing infrastructure at scale, you had multiple disruptions going on, right? Access to infrastructure with APIs, uh, utility-based pricing, which was, you know, Hey, don't pay significant capital up front to get access to servers and storage. You just pay by the drink, right? And uh, those multiple disruptions and the timing of that was something that developers needed, right? And the beauty, I think, of, of what they built was they, they built the need so ahead of the time that when people saw it, they said, what was I doing without this, right? <laughs> yeah. And our, our early engagement with you know, developers and startups Every day, we just saw people being completely elated with the fact that they could get access to this infrastructure. Was any of it a tough sell, though? You know, for when you're going out and because I mean, that's really interesting from the from the, uh, the the sort of biz dev side of things. Were you finding some companies were less willing to adopt cloud computing at the time? 
You know, it was it was mixed. I mean, you, you saw developers and startups jump right on it, right? It's interesting because some of the early enterprise customers that reached out, you know, including companies like Samsung and Netflix and all of that, they had a lot of security requirements, right? And so the, the, the two biggest asks that people asked about was, hey, is there persistent storage on EC2? And b- back at the time when I joined, there wasn't. And two months right after I joined, we had persistent storage. And then questions around security, right? And so, hey, can I bring this within my own, you know, virtual private cloud? Beyond that, it was just, you know, people using it in ways that guided us for how we need to evolve the platform. Who were you launching to in these early stages? Were you launching to Amazon and its own services first, or were you customer first? Because I know, Chris, you've spoken at length around migrating Love Film onto AWS. So obviously, there were some services that needed to be migrated, but I don't know what what stage in the journey that was. Sam, it largely started off with uh, new application development, right? I mean, if you look at some of the earlier use cases of S3, one particular customer called SmugMug, right, which was a photo sharing website at scale. Just the fact that they could, you know, take, you know, terabytes of photos and store them in S3 and have them accessible, you know, by an API endpoint was a huge game changer for them, right? Um, You think about, you know, replication of videos, having redundancy there, having high availability there. All of that came, you know, de facto with with, uh, S3. Uh, Then sort of you translate into the whole uh, casual gaming wave of Facebook. I mean, think of games like Farmville, uh, companies like Playfish and Zenga, uh, just massive adoption of those games, right? So they needed they needed elasticity. And we saw that as being some of the primary use cases initially. Uh, one really interesting use case, which actually was uh, Blue Origin, right? Which is the rocket company funded by Jeff. Their high-performance computing simulations uh, would run on multiple clusters of EC2, right? And so what we did see initially was new application development that all of a sudden opened up because the infrastructure was so accessible. And you saw these emerging use cases uh, pop up. And over time, then you saw migrations happen, right? You saw people saying, hey, you know, I have my front office application, I have a back office application, and I'm just running out of capacity, Right. And that gave them a good opportunity to migrate some of those things. And now when you look at it, there's a whole big push around, you know, data center migrations, um, multi-application migrations that are happening at scale. There were tools and things that are available on uh, on the internal version, though, of AWS that I don't think have ever made it to the, to the, um, the public domain, like uh, Web Labs, I'm thinking more mainly of. Was there was there any discussions in the sort of biz dev department about which ones we were going to make available or where there was a gap in the market? I mean, how did the product sort of get developed in that regard? Yeah, so that's a great question, Chris. Uh, the reality was there were so many web services internally being used by Amazon for a variety of capabilities. When the vision of AWS was sort of built, it was saying, hey, what are those primitives that majority of developers need access to? And it's interesting because the first web service that was launched was storage because the ubiquity of it, the need for it was in such high demand. And we it was such a key primitive to bring to market that that's where it started. 
And then you had, you know, the simple queuing service, which came too, which was you had developers that basically needed access to queues, right? And what ended up happening was this hierarchy of needs, if you will. What are those hierarchy of needs for developers uh, that they must have, which are the primitives? As the primitives were built, then it was sort of understanding, well, how are people using the technology? And, you know, one of the interesting things that we saw was the LAMP stack, right? Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP was very popular amongst developers back in the early days of AWS. And we saw, you know, developers using MySQL. But the challenge of managing MySQL, think about like backups, snapshots, replication, and all those things, were things that were difficult. And our general mantra at AWS is, what can we do to basically remove the muck of managing infrastructure, add management capabilities like that as services? And that was when managed database services sort of became a thing and a category for AWS. And that was the, the mental model that we had with what services do we expose? Well, let's see how developers are using it today. What are their biggest pain points? Is there a service that we have internally that makes sense to externalize? But then over time, there were things that we said, hey, you know, desktop computing is a big market. AI machine learning is a big market. So then we were very, very thoughtful about bringing new categories of services to AWS. And that's largely what spun the innovation flywheel of the hundreds of different services that are available today. There's the uh, mention of the flywheel there as well, I guess. I was going to ask you, how has that Amazon effect affected your career? Because you've mentioned a flywheel already. Um, are you still finding yourself quoting the leadership principles on a daily basis? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Um, <laughs> I, I say this that, you know, a person can leave Amazon, but the Amazon can never leave the person, right? And so I agree. <laughs> you certainly start, it becomes second nature, right? You think the leadership principles, you think about the vernacular and the vocabulary that we use, like flywheels and, you know, customer obsession, those tend to live on. And it's interesting is that it, it, it guides a lot of what I do. In fact, you know, as I was reading the latest shareholder newsletter by Andy Jassy, which was his first newsletter. Uh, shareholder newsletter, I saw a lot of those principles that I live by today. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's sort of baked in. I mean, I, I'm I'm constantly referring back to like the leadership training and referring to the the leadership principles and all of those sort of things. I've I've used them in the sort of ten years since I left the place. It's just uh, it's one of those things that you, you, you're you're totally right. It's never going to leave you. What's uh, what's the flywheel? So the flywheel is a very interesting concept. It's um, this thing of when, when you sort of look at the construct of the flywheel, it's basically a virtuous cycle of inputs and outputs, right? And so what do you input into a system or a mechanism whereby the inputs eventually create value in a way that the outputs actually become the inputs? And I know I said a lot of stuff there, uh, but that's basically the, the, the classic Amazon growth flywheel, which is look at, hey, the more inventory you add, the more traffic you're going to drive. The more traffic you drive, the more opportunity you have for selection. More selection creates more uh, traffic, which actually gives you better economies of scale. And now you can basically take those savings and fuel them back into the growth flywheel, right? And so you just create a virtuous cycle that just continues to feed on itself. That's cool. Just dropping back a little bit, it strikes me as very, I suppose it's not 
that crazy but you know you mentioned that you were basically launching something so innovative straight to the user normally in a lot of scenarios you kind of you build something for yourself and then you think hang on people could probably use this tool that we're building we're building all these services this this cloud infrastructure we're already using this or building this why don't we make it into something that you can sell you know but it sounds like you dove right in and and we're really thinking about making this a consumable product almost at the same time as you were as you were adopting it at amazon yourself am i right in thinking that yeah absolutely and that's i think largely what happened is because the internal teams at Amazon saw the value that it was giving them. Uh, we immediately said that, hey, we could translate this to all the thousands and millions of developers that are out there. And I think the proof point internally validated the go-to-market need uh, externally as well. And the truth of the matter is, is you know, sometimes not everything is for the mark for the market, right? And so. Sometimes there were services which are so unique to how Amazon operated as a company. And one of the interesting things is as much as developers and organizations were very interested in using AWS, there was this aspect of cultural change, right? And so one of the things that I tell people is AWS is the technical manifestation of Amazon's culture, which is, you know, Two pizza teams, right? Small teams. They're decentralized. Uh, they have autonomy. There was a thing that Charlie Bell, who is the SVP of engineering at um, AWS, he said this very interesting thing, which stuck to me and it continues to stick with me, which is culture influences architecture and architecture influences culture. And so the tools that you give developers ultimately guides well, the culture at which they operate. And when you create these modular web services, which are primitives and they have certain capabilities, and you empower smaller distributed decentralized teams, what you really have created is an innovation flywheel, right? And there's enough consistency and almost a technical slash social contract between the teams. But now when you have hundreds of two pizza teams operating, you get this speed of innovation that is just, you know, uh, the best. And I know what you mean by pizza teams. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Two pizza team, right? The uh, team should be no bigger than what it would uh, take to feed them two pizzas, right? Unfortunately, that makes me a team of my own. <laughs> <laughs> Before we move on, we talked about the influence of Amazon, that never leaving you, but what about that influence of being in meetings with with Jeff and Andy Jassy? I mean, has, has that had a, an influence on your career as well, do you think? Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, I think in in sort of three ways. Uh, number one, with with how Andy sort of ran the meetings, and I had more meetings with Andy. You're uh, very thoughtful in how he conducts those meetings, right? And I think one of the things is there was this concept of we always like to truth seek, right? And you know, Andy is one of those uh, leaders who's a truth seeker, and he's always about ensuring that collectively the teams uh, find the right decision. So. He conducted those meetings in a very humble way, very authentic way, being very data-driven, but at the same time, being very understanding of the customer context and, and, and the market in general. And uh, very keen on making sure that everyone gives their opinions, right? And so 
we'd sit in these rooms, we'd read six page narratives for the first 20 minutes. And then he would go around the room and have everyone kind of give their input. And at the end, he would give his input, right? And I thought that was just a very unique way for how he would conduct the meetings. When you leave Amazon, we talked about like all of the services that were then being exposed as AWS, you know, for, for AWS and, and various other things. But there were services for absolutely everything in, in my experience at Amazon, whether it be mailing lists or, um, you know, I think there was an old farts tool as well, which would tell you how long you'd been at Amazon in comparison to everybody else there, which I remember a couple of people were quite uh, excited about. But like when I left, I went to, to Tesco, which was, you know, is, is a huge, you know, global supermarket, Europe's equivalent of Walmart, I guess. But we had none of that stuff. And it just baffled me that like, you'd walk in, you'd be trying to meet people in this huge organization with so many employees. And you you didn't know what someone looked like. So like the phone tool that Amazon has, where you can literally look up anybody in the business and see their face and their name and where they work. And, uh, you know, if they've got rescue dogs or what badges they've won or what things they've gone through on uh, what, what courses they've done on AWS. You had nothing like that. It was so strange to walk out somewhere and have all of that taken away from you. And like every hour on the hour in the courtyard, you've got people going, are you? Uh, no, sorry, I'm, I'm this other person. You know, Everyone's trying to meet each other, but no one has a clue what anyone looks like or who they work for or all that sort of stuff. So the communication just totally breaks down. Now, I imagine going from Amazon to Microsoft, it's probably better than it was for me going to, to Tesco 10 years ago. But how, how did you feel having some of those tools taken away? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is because when you spend 10 years and you're certain used to tools that help you navigate the organization, you go to a new context and you're, you're kind of looking for those similar tools. You know, to my surprise, though, what was very interesting about Microsoft was I would reach out to certain VPs to schedule meetings with them and they would be on the other side of campus. And it's funny how I thought I was going to have a call with them and literally they were just outside my office, right? And so... I, I found that to be so unique in that Microsoft just really wanted to have in-person meetings, right? So people would go out of the way to meet you in person. And for me, that was a little bit of a shock, right? Because I was like, well, you, you came all the, you know, all the way from the other side of campus to meet me. And so that made me feel special, number one. But then I also realized that what was, what was unique about the culture at Microsoft was just this emphasis on in person, right? Not, not to say that Amazon wasn't that way as well. Amazon certainly was that way, but I found it a little bit be more emphasized at Microsoft. That's really interesting. So, I mean, when, when did you go to Microsoft? What, what year are we talking here? I joined uh, early 2018. I wonder what it's like now. Obviously, everyone's a lot more remote. Um, that being such a something so highly regarded as that is in-person meetings. Do you have any idea, inclination of how they've suffered at all because of this? Well, you know what I mean? Uh, two, two of the years I was there at Microsoft, about a year and a half of it was during the pandemic, right? And it was, I will tell you, a cultural shift, right? I mean, it was, uh, you, could ver- you could tell people weren't fully optimal with, with the virtual environment, right? Certainly teams got better and, you know, things made it a little bit better over time, but there's still a huge hunger for it to be in person where it makes sense. Wow, have they adopted or have they kind of rushed back to the offices? No, they've adopted. They've adopted. And I think there have been attempts to kind of go back into the office. And obviously, it's a, it's a bit of a phased process. So what was it that, you, that lured you away from AWS to go and work for, uh, for Microsoft? 
You know, it's interesting is because uh, Microsoft had approached me a number of times and every time I, I said no. And, <laughs> you know, eight, eight months in the process of trying to convince me to, to, to join. What, what sort of, I think there were three things that inspired me to join Microsoft. One, as I started learning more about Satya's leadership and his vision of what he was trying to do, it was, uh, it was inspiration to be very open with you. And I think for me, reading his book, Hit Refresh, was his personal journey for not only taking the role of a CEO of you know Microsoft, but at the same time, the cultural change he was trying to bring in the company. For me, it, it got to the point where you know it was less about the technology. It was about the customer success function, which I thought was very unique that Microsoft was doing. But ultimately, the tipping point for me was when the EVP, Judson Altoff, had said, hey, think about the cultural transformation you could help us with, right? And I saw that as an interesting challenge for me in that, you know, I, I'd lived this culture of customer obsession, agility, uh, the leadership principles, right? And I saw this as an opportunity to help bring that to Microsoft. And that's what really got me to make the move. So was there, was there a sort of gap in the, in the culture then, do you think? I think not so much a gap as much as a transition that was happening, right? And so not only with how they were building products, but then how they were actually selling products, right? So going from a very license-based culture, kind of top-down motion to more of a bottoms-up consumption-like model. And while that much is about how you sell products, it's also about how you build and structure teams to be able to have that culture. And I thought that was the most exciting thing. And then one of the things that I noticed immediately was how you build a culture, it, it goes back to how you operate the company. And the company was still being very much operated like a licensing-based culture, right? We are still focusing on the cloud portion here, the, the Azure, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's the experience that you're bringing over. But that's that's kind of the thing that that Microsoft has sort of rebuilt itself around, I guess, isn't it, is, is Azure in the last few years? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things, Chris, that I really appreciated was this whole concept of systems thinking, right? Because as much as you have someone like Satya talking about cultural change, talking about cloud first, mobile first, and, you know, all those emerging technologies, system, you know, organizations are so complex, right? Um, I always go back to that quote from that book, The Art of the Motorcycle Maintenance is, you can destroy a motorcycle factory, but if the mindset that built the motorcycle remains, you'll eventually get another factory, right? And so the mindset is the thing that has to change. And it almost has to happen on all dimensions, sort of simultaneously, right? Because if you just focus on one part of it, and then you focus on another part of it, you can't eradicate the mindset of the old way, right? Because it'll just come back. Well, what's this book? I don't, I don't know that book. <laughs> oh, it's the classic, the, the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. I'm going to read that one. That sounds like a good one. It's a much read, yeah. Excellent book, yeah. We'll put these in the show notes because you mentioned Hit Refresh as well from Zatia. So, uh... Yeah, Hit Refresh was great. Yeah, I'm, I mean, we're recording this, but I'm writing this down apparently. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and one, one thing I will say too, you know, as it, it might sound a little bit cliche, but the mission of Microsoft when Satya took uh, the role of a CEO, it actually changed, right? So 
when you know Bill Gates and Paul Allen started Microsoft, it was about getting a PC on every desk in every home, right? And Satya changed it, and and the mission was empower every individual and organization on the planet to achieve more. And what's so beautiful about that is that it has no reference to technology. Mm, yeah, you can empower people to achieve more through technology, right? And so that sticks with me even today. You know, yeah, I think that's really interesting, isn't it? The because uh, that that is a that is a cultural shift. I was thinking about it as you were saying it as to whether that makes it you know with it being less specific, does that make it more difficult to achieve? But I actually suppose it it just reflects the impact that technology has had in what. 30 or 40 years, I suppose, since Microsoft was, was found roughly 40 years. It's probably 45 or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think the mission had this longevity to it, which, you know, where I'm in my life, I look at um, things that have longevity. And I started looking at myself more about being a steward of, of, of the world, right? So, like, we're, we're, we're given responsibility. Uh, we're given an opportunity to caretake. Of things right so this whole thing of like hey i don't own anything i'm i'm just a caretaker it actually shifts your mindset more towards how do you enable others right and you know satya talks about this in fact um you know there's this podcast masters of scale that i listen to quite often from reed hoffman satya was on that and he talked about just the social contract that organizations have with their surroundings right and you look at the corporation through a different lens when you think about the social contract. Have you bought any domain names recently, Sam? I'm a developer. That's that's one of the um, trademarks of a good developer, isn't what, it? What, domain hoarding? Just in case. Yeah, it's hard to get a good domain name. It's like choosing a feature branch name. Oh, that's easy. No, it's not. Like In comparison to like trying to start a business, pick a domain name, all of that sort of stuff. It's very complex. <laughs> so where do you go then? Where do you where do you buy your domains? The best place I've gone is uh, Namecheap. That's what I use. I would say that it not just has the widest range of domains that are on offer at good prices, but actually when you're administering the domain name and you're trying to set up all your MX links and your A links and all that sort of stuff, uh, A records, there we go, C names, all those sort of things... It has probably the best descriptions for how to make the changes. And it's the easiest to edit, in my opinion. Yeah. One-click setup on WordPress websites, hosting. They do the email as well, so they can do all of that. So if you have got a business idea, then now's the time to take action. The first piece of action you can do is buy your domain name. Well, the first piece of action is to take a look in our description for this episode or head over to thattech.show and click the affiliate link so that when you start using Namecheap, we get a little bit of a kickback. There we go. You're also um, an angel investor, right? I am, yeah. Is that part of the, is that part of the well, I suppose giving back, but obviously getting a little bit yourself? <laughs> Yeah, you know, I started angel investing uh, after I left uh, AWS, right? So um, uh, first angel investment was actually a friend of mine who started a company. And, you know, he said, hey, you should join. And ultimately, I said, hey, look, at I, I, I can't leave, you know, my, my comfortable job right now. So here, why don't I give you some money to start the business? And I learned so much as an angel investor. I, I sort of got to live vicariously through 
the founders that I funded. It, it always made me appreciate what I have, right? But it also created a lot of inspiration for the journey that founders go through, right? They're going through something very, very unique, right? And, you know, I did a few angel investments here and there, and then I continued to do more, and I used that as a way to learn, right? I, I kind of say it's like me paying for an MBA in a way, right? I'm, I'm paying to learn about entrepreneurship, right? And in the process, if an angel investment gives a return, hey, that's great. Uh, but more so, it's the network that I built around it and the developers I get to know. Was that something you'd always wanted to do, to do in angel investing? Or, or was that just something that came along as an opportunity? It, it came along as an opportunity, I would say. And then as I started doing more of it, I, I enjoyed it. And, you know, I always think about, you know, in the future, if that's something I'd like to do full time and potentially maybe. So was the, the thing that gave you the power to do that, was that the, the growth of Amazon shares from being there for 10 years? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you have a little bit of capital that you think about how do you diversify, you know, where you make those investments, right? And there's obviously the public markets, there's real estate. But what's unique about this is that you're not only infusing capital into a founder's company, you're actually also giving your time and your expertise, right? And so with a uh, majority of the investments that I do, I... I always say, how can I help? How can I bring my experience, my network, my background to help you realize, you know, what you're trying to build? So have you had any of them come good so far? Well, so the first investment that I did resulted in an acquisition uh, earlier this year, but it wasn't easy. <laughs> I, I, I saw the ups and downs of the founder and uh, helped him through that. Uh, but it was a good outcome for him. You know, he, he got bought out by another startup. And, you know, he's got a good position there. And so that's going well. So what's this, the typical sort of things that you have to deal with in terms of like, you know, guiding a founder through, uh, through, through that sort of first phase of acquisition? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, it is about thinking how and where do you spend your capital, right? Because when you, when you do have the capital, I always look at it this way that, you know, and I, and I heard this from someone, uh, I forget who that, Great CEOs are great at capital allocation. And so they know where and when and how much to allocate certain capital to. Right? And the journey of this founder was, you know, he, he'd call me up. He's like, hey, I only have three months left that I can pay payroll. I think I'm going to shut this down. And I'm like, no, uh, what's going on? What do you need to do? And we made certain introductions and we found an investor who infused some capital and gave them a little bit more runway. And he had gone through sort of three phases where he was literally just about to shut the company down. You know what it eventually came down to, Chris, was just his grit in selling his vision to the CEO of the company that eventually bought it. And yeah, he had amazing technology. He built a great team. But it all came down to grit to make that outcome happen for him, which I think he developed over those four years of building the company. What do you look for then? Maybe it's grit, but what do you look for in a founder before you you decide to invest in that company? That's a great question, Sam. You know, I mean, I I sort of think that you almost have to look at each individual item at its own merit, right? So the founder, the technology that they're building, uh, the people that they bring around them, right? So I think it's very important to say what other people does that founder rely on, right? Um, you obviously look at the market, the customer demand, but then 
what I always say is that you almost have to read in between the lines. Like, how does the founder, the technology, the market, the people that they know, how do they all work together? Like, what's the dynamics between them that gives me as an investor enough confidence to extrapolate and say, hey, over time, they can collectively create value. And, um, you know, I, I, I generally look at founders' passion for what they're trying to do, right? Because it's, it's not an easy thing, right? You will invariably go through downtime, right? You will go through time where your grit and your persistence is going to get you through. And does the founder have enough of that passion in what they're building, in what they're going to do? And I think openness. Openness is very important because I see some founders that are very fixated on what they want to do. And while I think focus is important, you have to be flexible in certain areas. And you mentioned, I apologize, I, I forgot the vernacular that you used, but you mentioned seeing things through a different lens, having read uh, Hit Refresh and Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And do you, do you think that gives you, not necessarily um, any kind of upper hand, but a, a sort of just a different perspective that, that helps you just make those decisions? Yeah, and and I and I go back to that point, Sam. That um, the concept of transfer learning, I think, is so important. In that, the more disciplines you expose yourself to, while on their own merit they may be completely orthogonal to your day to day, at some point you can make a connection, right? And so, you know, that's why I'm a board member to a nonprofit because I think that the nonprofit is going to teach me very different things that are unique for the nonprofit, but I could almost transfer learn how they do certain things to my regular job, right? And so I think it's very important to, you know, as they say, be a sponge, soak up as much knowledge as you can across multiple domains, because then eventually you can start making connections. Jumping back to Microsoft, I might have missed this, so apologies, but what was your role at Microsoft? So my role was to lead customer success for Azure. They did a big field transformation back in 2017, where they literally took the field and created a customer success function, which uh, gold these individuals on driving consumption of Azure. Right? And so you had this thing where Azure was sold largely through these enterprise agreements that Microsoft was very, very effective at selling uh, you know, circa 2016, 2017. But it created this deficit of adoption, right? Which is like people are buying it, but people aren't consuming it. And so they largely looked at, you know, the customer success function that sort of originated at Salesforce, uh, what Amazon had been doing from day one, and saying, how do you create customer success as a way to go drive adoption and consumption of a technology? And that's ultimately what uh, the function was about was, working with customers on projects, create enough momentum that it eventually translated into bigger digital transformation initiatives or big migrations. And you mentioned one of the biggest driving factors for you to land at at Microsoft was the opportunity to bring about change and bring your experience from Amazon or AWS more specifically to, to Microsoft. Do you feel that you achieve that or you're able to bring that about that change? You know, what's interesting is that I feel like the change started emerging six months before I left, right? And what it taught me and it validated to me is that 
change takes time. And so, you know, at Microsoft, a lot of the leaders were very focused on outputs, right? It's like, hey, how come consumption's not happening? And I told them that, look, it, it's less about the outputs, it's about the inputs. You have to focus on putting the right things into the system and actually just being patient that over time they will take time to, you know, sort of absorb in the system. But then eventually you hit this exponential phase, right? And um, for me, it was about doing grassroots kind of thought leadership. It was also at the executive level giving what are those points for cultural change? And then honestly, you know, Sam, it was just every day making sure that I'm doing the right inputs. Because eventually if I focus on inputs, outputs are going to come. I suppose that takes it back to the flywheel again, doesn't it? It, it, you know, it takes you back to the flywheel. And Chris, the other thing it takes back to is systems thinking. I just, I just started appreciating the difficult nature of what Satya was trying to do, which was cultural change is not easy, especially when you have very, very well established systems, teams, and leaders in place, right? So everyone intellectually agrees with what you say but not everyone is immediate in making the change. Do you think they still have a long way to go culturally then? I think they've made significant progress, right? I do think though that there, there still is a lot of room for how they can continue to evolve. So, so back onto Redis. We've talked about like these two huge monstrous companies, uh, AWS and and. Microsoft specifically with Azure, where you're selling to you're selling a huge product to multiple, you know, big consumers. Redis is slightly different in that it is essentially like it's a core product, and, and you know, I'm happy for you to completely blow this out, out, you know, out of proportion and tell me I'm completely wrong. But it's it's one of those fundamental products where you know, as a developer on a day to day basis or an architect on a day to day basis, you're going to go, oh, we should probably use Redis for that, you know. But you've got a problem where you need to do this thing. Redis is your go-to to go. Oh well, if we put Redis in there, that'll solve that issue. You know, whether it's like um, I don't know, I use it quite a lot with WebSockets, like for from event-driven systems, so that you know you you want to be able to um, share that same data or recover data when a WebSocket you know drops or whatever. Redis is just going to be your default for for a whole load of things. So that's that's got to be a very different perspective from those previous huge companies to now go into i'm selling this core product uh, and obviously it, it it's just ubiquitous it's used by everybody how has that so how's that dynamic changed for you going from those two huge uh, well actually you mentioned oracle as well before so let's go for three huge companies into uh, into redis you know that's a great great question chris and i and I have a very interesting answer for that. Um, while what I appreciate about my role at Redis is very focused on this one technology, it goes back to the thing that the ubiquity of the technology, its simplicity, and above all, its reception by developers is so vast that in many ways, I feel like we're just touching the surface of what it can be. And I always go back to this thing is that if you're given something, you can ask a very scoped question for what it can be or you can increase the aperture on it and make it so massive that the question that you ask is basically the function of what it can be over time and now let me sort of explain that is i don't think about redis as a technology 
you know, for enterprise caching or what it means for machine learning. As much as I ask the question is, how can I create economies off of this technology? And I, I, I kind of go back to this interesting thing, and there's always debate on, you know, when you look at sort of, you know, feudalism, how it all started. People go back to that. The origin of it was the invention of the stirrup, right? Which was that little that you put your foot into it and, and when you, you know, get on a horse, right? And from that, you basically had the economy of feudalism. And so I always go back to that emerging technologies have that ability when you look at them and you say, this is what it does today, but this is what it can be. You completely open up multiple opportunities for what it can be. And that's what excites me about this role is that I look at this technology because it was founded by and created by a gentleman named Salvatore Sanfilippo. And he created that technology because he had this burning need for speed. He wanted fast, performant web application that he was building. And he said the best way to do that is store everything in memory. But the way he said is that how do you give that to developers? Well, you you meet them where they are. Developers need to have API access. They need to be they need to have support for multiple programming languages. And they have different data types that they work with. They work with lists, they work with sorted sets, they work with hashes. And basically, now you can have those data types all stored in memory. And so I go back to this thing that the possibilities of what Redis can be. And it's funny because when you look at the word Redis, Redis is an acronym for Remote Dictionary Server, right? But if you look at the word Redis, it's actually a subset of the word rediscover. And what I always look at is that it's all about rediscovery. How do you take a technology and rediscover how it can be used? And that's why I have this mantra and we, we say is that rediscover Redis. People use it for a caching. Immediately they say, hey, I could use this as a rate limiter. Oh, I could use this as a session management store. To the point that in my world with machine learning, people are using it as a feature store, as a vector database. And what gives it that is it solves one thing so correctly and so efficiently, which is speed. But it allows you to use multiple data types, multiple client libraries, right? So it's ubiquity, simplicity, versatility, and above all, low latency is, is, is what makes it so special. Not just the chief business officer for nothing then with all of those little uh, <laughs> need for speed and uh, rediscover Redis. It's very nice. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, there's, a, there's a part of me that thinks like a product marketer. So uh, I always uh, <laughs> how, how old is Redis as a company? So Redis as a company uh, started in 2011. Is it really that recent? I'm surprised by that. It feels like it's been around forever. Well, the technology, so uh, Salvatore started uh, Redis and he open sourced it uh, back in, I think, 2009. Mm, okay. 2009. And then Ofer and Yiftok started a company which was Redis Labs, basically. And it was based on the Redis technology. And then I believe it was 2015 that Salvatore actually joined Redis. So if this is the uh, the stirrup that is going to sort of inspire uh, everything to come from it, um, what's what the what's the future plan for, for, for Redis now? What can you let us into in, in that sort of future plan? What, what's it going to become? Well, I, I look at it, you know, if you go back to the stirrup analogy, I think 
I am as bold as saying that Redis powers the world economy. And when you look at Redis's open source ubiquity, you know, our commercial offering, which we offer on premise and on the cloud, it's used by financial services, telcos, healthcare companies, emerging companies. I mean, think about this whole big push around consumer apps and consumer experiences. You think about companies like DoorDash, you look at Uber, even Grab. You know, a lot of them started off with doing one thing very correctly, which was giving you access to unused capacity of, of vehicles, but they become super apps now, right? And super apps are all about instant experience. And I really genuinely feel that, that Redis powers the world economy today, because if you look at some of our customer logos today, you'll see that. Do you, are we going to do some name dropping? Go on, give, give us a couple. <laughs> For those who don't know, we're listening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll see a lot of these referenced on our website as well, too, from companies, you know, like uh, FedEx and DoorDash and, uh, you know, some of the big banks, which I can't name, uh, but they leverage uh, a lot of our a lot of our technology for low latency applications. Right? But there are two things that I think about, and I learned this from one of our investors and our board member, uh, Enrique Salem, which you know, I said, hey, look, it, I'm, I'm on this path to go and build the machine learning business for, for the company and the technology. What advice would you give me? And he gave me this awesome advice, which he said, anything you look at, you have to show how it is indispensable to the current world. And you also have to show how it is the future of the company, right? And so when you think about indispensability, Redis is absolutely indispensable for many companies, right? In it's part of the mission critical applications that it powers, but it's also part of the future because the future is intelligent applications. It is you know empowering more developers, your citizen developers, to be able to create applications, right? And it is with that that I take this whole story of machine learning about indispensability and making it part of the future. So, so what does that mean from a machine learning, well, for the machine learning aspect, what does that mean? Does that mean the, there is another product coming, an extension to the existing product? You know, what, what, what's that going to look like? That's a great question. You know, I mean, there's already a lot of what I like to call organic adoption by the community and by customers of and users of Redis today, where they've actually rediscovered how the technology can be used for machine learning use cases. And so one of the examples that we see is, you know, companies like DoorDash or Robinhood that are taking Redis and making it a low latency feature store, which ultimately serves the data that goes into an online prediction. And we've started formalizing that a little bit more with integrations with open source technologies, integration with cloud providers, making sure that, hey, if any company is trying to build a feature platform, you know, for their overall MLOps lifecycle, that their online feature store is Redis, right? And so that's one way. We actually introduced um, a new capability within Redis called Vector Similarity Search. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but it's basically rediscovering Redis as a vector database where you could take unstructured data, represent that into what we call vector embeddings. And now Redis becomes a repository of vector embeddings. But with our search technology, now you can index those embeddings and run what we call similarity searches. So if you think about recommendation systems, fraud detection systems, 
a lot of them are running, you know, massive queries against data, which shows similarity, right? And so there's a lot of mathematical things involved in there from like cosine similarity and, you know, what they call this thing, approximate nearest neighbor. And we have basically, we discovered Redis as a vector similarity search engine. And we just introduced that about a month ago in our um, open source database. Does that mean you're sort of taking on the likes of Elasticsearch, I suppose, in that, that instance? Yeah, so if you think about it, it is um, Redis, uh, several years ago, we created this multi-model capability called Redis Modules. And it basically says, hey, how do you take the low latency and high throughput nature of Redis and make it more purpose-built based on the data model? And so we created these modules for time series data, search index, graph data, JSON, and, and even AI as well, too. And a part of this is we're already in the search business because we have a search module. What this allows us to do is that it allows us to get into the vector search market, right? And so, yes, you have folks like Elastic, you have other, you know, kind of pure play vector similarity companies out there that have built this capability. I think what's unique about us is that the brand of Redis, the popularity of Redis, it just is a nice extension for what we can bring to the market. If you're going after those sorts of areas, is there a challenge from the fact that it's a it's a, a memory an in memory store versus like you know a more traditional database? You know when you're thinking about like a search type function or even an, a, a machine learning function. Yeah, um, the good thing here is is that because it's in memory, you get your low latency characteristics right. But with what we've built in our you know commercial offering, is the ability to persist the data right. So we do have persistent options as well too which, you know, make it effectively a real-time NoSQL database. And so where's the, I'm trying to not, not say this question without it turning into an advert, but for example, <laughs> I've tried to, um, to use some of the AWS implementations of, of Redis and not actually had that much luck with them, frankly, um, just because they've been painful to wrangle with. But I think that's more of uh, AWS's implementation. If you want to use Redis in the cloud, how do you suggest setting that up or where do you suggest going? I mean, is it only your solution? Like, I could presume, presume you have a hosted version or are there other things that you would suggest? Yeah, so, I mean, if you look at the developer journey, um, it starts off with most starting off with open source, right? You know, they can download it for free. They can start implementing it. What we've noticed, though, is that there's certain thresholds that implementations reach where they need operational excellence, right? And so you have two options, right? One is hire more engineers and then, build that scaffolding yourself, right? Which is a tough thing to do, but then over time, difficult to manage. Or you could go with a managed service offering like Redis Enterprise, where it's available in the cloud as a managed service. It's available as software too, so that you know we do see a good number of uh, implementations of Redis Enterprise on-premise uh, for a variety of reasons. It might be data sovereignty, it might be data security for why they want it in-house, right? But ultimately though, the value add that they get with five nines of availability, linear scalability. And I would say those very hard problems of managing multiple Redis clusters at scale is effectively the value that we bring with these managed offerings. So if a customer's on AWS and they need that managed, you know, that 
enterprise-grade managed capability, they could get it on AWS with Redis Enterprise. And how does like the sort of positioning then? So if someone is using, say, say they're using AWS or Google or, or, or Azure, how, how do you deal with the sort of latency between the clouds? Or are you, are you able to suggest that actually you're running that on uh, the, the cloud solution for Redis is running on AWS or Google or... And it's running on AWS. So like all of our all of our managed offerings are running in those respective clouds. Right. Okay. Right? Well, that's my stupid question then. So we'll ignore that one. <laughs> no, no worries. No worries. And, and to the extent that, it, you know, some customers have said, that, hey, look, we want to run Redis Enterprise in our own VPC, which is their own virtual private cloud, in which they can certainly do that as well too. And is there like a data visualization view as well there? Because I think that was the issue I struggled with more over on AWS than anything else when I'm using there implementation of it is like actually being able to visualize the data because it's so easy to use it locally but it's when you're hosting in the cloud actually checking that the data got to where you were expecting it to go like <laughs> dashboards are really important is is that a product you have we have a tool called redis insights which uh, actually gives you a visualization of usage data on redis right and so that comes as part of the solution that's one one option that people do um, certainly if people have visualization tools like Tableau or Looker or anything like that, they can use standard, you know, data connections uh, into Redis to expose that data. But uh, Redis Insight is is the thing that we offer as part of uh, the visualization. So with the AI side of things, jumping back to that, how, how do you how do you see that expanding then for, for Redis over the over the next few years? You've talked about like people reimagining how they're using it and you've introduced these different things to, to explore the product more, but where do you see that going? I mean, how is that going to change the the landscape for, I suppose the landscape for technology considering it's, it's ubiquity, um, but how do you expect that's going to weave its way into the rest of the world for the ne- over the next sort of five years or so, I guess? Yeah, and I, and I think the way to look at it is that y- you've uh, had these companies like Uber, Gojek, Netflix, all of these companies build machine learning platforms from the ground up, right? And they did this, you know, circa 2016, 2017. And around 2019 is when many of them started sharing these architectures with the public and the community, right? And what you could see, and if you sort of look at the classic Clay Christensen model of going from integrated designs to modularity, right? A lot of those companies had to credit really integrate their stacks. But what you have now uh, over the past four years is a lot of introduction of new categories of things from like feature stores to model observability. And so a much more broader thing for ML ops, right? Uh, We are at this point where like there's the modularization of those infrastructure components and many companies really wanting to go for best of breed. And so the way I see this playing out specifically for Redis is people will want to go with that best of breed mentality and say, hey, look, at I have my whole MLOps pipeline and for feature real-time serving, I wanted to use Redis, right? And so for us, it's about ensuring that we, we have a ticket to the party, but are we dressed in the right clothing? And the way you're dressed in the right clothing is you integrate with these different MLOps stacks, right? So we integrate with Azure ML, we integrate with third-party commercial off-the-shelf things like Tecton. We integrate with open source things like Feast and Feather. Feather is an open source thing that just came out of LinkedIn, right? And so for us, it's about ensuring that we have the right integrations across the ecosystem, across the MLOps lifecycle. There's some cool new names that you're dropping that I don't know. I'm going to have to go and look up. What, what does Feather do? 
Feather. So Feather is a uh, is an open source. Think of it as um, a feature orchestration software, right? Which basically helps tie the whole world of training and serving together. And uh, Feather is a thing that was implemented at LinkedIn for their for their feature platform, uh, which they just open sourced, I believe, about a month ago. Yeah. And that's one thing I'll tell you, Chris, is that like the space evolves so fast that just the moment you feel like your feet are touching the ground, something happens and you're like, oh, no, I didn't know about that. Right? So, Oh, I think that's just software in general, right? That's, got that's to be. software in general. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you see like machine learning becoming really ubiquitous then over the next few, five to 10 years? Because I think, you know, it's something that, you know, people have been talking about an awful lot. I think people have started to understand it maybe more in the last two to three years, but people have been talking about it for, for probably almost a decade, it feels like. Uh, are people really starting to, to be able to, you know, is it going to change the landscape for everybody? Are people going to really understand what to, how it's going to have an impact on the world? You know, I think people are starting to see that, right? I mean, it's obviously gone through your classic technology adoption lifecycle, right? And I think it, we're at the point where, and going back to this whole thing about the future of AI infrastructure is becoming more modular. And when it becomes more modular, what that allows the market adoption to go through is uh, you're, you're beyond the early adopter phase, right? And you're now really getting kind of into the mainstream adoption. I think what's important is going to be, there's a lot of lessons learned, I think. you know, There was a time four years ago where most companies hired a bunch of data scientists thinking that, hey, we're, gonna, we're just going to have breakthroughs in machine learning. And the thing that they realized was, hey, while the models were great, the data quality wasn't great. And so they didn't get the ROI based on the investment that they made. And a lot of projects got canned and, and, and as a result of that, right? And so I think what's happened now is a maturity in the understanding of what makes an ML project or an AI project successful. And it is not just about the model. It is about the whole data pipeline. It is about data quality. It is about ensuring that you have the right governance there. And so the maturity of our understanding for what it takes for a project to be successful is now, I believe, understood. Now it's a matter of saying, how do you implement it in a modular fashion and be very, very focused on you know, project by project. It's not about getting 100 models in production. It's about getting five models in production and making sure that they're giving the ROI and the business outcomes that you want to drive, right? And then iterating and expanding from there. And so I generally feel that we are kind of past that chasm point. And, and now there's more modularity that's going to go into it. There's going to be best of breed. You're going to have this classic life cycle right now of more mainstream adoption. Well, it'll be certainly exciting to see that and see how it progresses. Before we close up, though, um, there was one thing that I was I wanted to, to ask you from from quite early on. Actually, you mentioned that you studied computer science, and then you've gone in this biz dev direction. What made you decide to to do uh, to to focus on the, the the sales, the business development, all of that side of things? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of an organic process, right? Because when I started off as an engineer at Siebel Systems, I didn't even know what a product manager was, right? But then <laughs> the moment I met my first product manager, I'm like, well, what do you do? I started getting an interest in that role. I'm like, you know, I want to be a product manager too. And so eventually I transitioned into a product manager. And then from there, um, I didn't even know business development existed, right? So, <laughs> But then I was on the first project where we OEM'd a third-party technology within our offering. 
And then I learned about business development. Like, you know, hey, I want to be that, right? And so then I became business development. And when I finally got to the point of what I really enjoy doing is I, I love being close to the technology, but I love creating businesses around it, right? And so it kind of goes back to the example of why I love Redis is because I look at it as a technology, but I look at it as I can create economies off of this technology. And I, I think that's the transition I made. And the area that I love right now is, is, is building business. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, and it's been great talking to you and, and going through this this history and figuring out what you're going to what you're going to, what you've been doing, what you're going to going to be doing at Redis, and uh, it's very exciting to see how that's going to grow. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Chris and Sam. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks very much. All right, thank you. A wealth of experience there. Absolutely. An inspiring person and an inspiring conversation. Well, next time we have Vishal Maria, founder of Contexa, which is another inspiring story of entrepreneurial spirit that runs deep through his family. So if you're new to the show... And still listening at this point... Yeah, exactly. Uh, we want <laughs> we want to sincerely thank you for supporting the show, and we really couldn't do it without you. Uh, so please, once again, like, subscribe, maybe hit that bell, give us a follow, maybe head over to buy me a coffee, and well, you know, buy us a coffee. We like coffee. We could do some coffee right now. Um, <laughs> check out the website for sixty four other episodes, including Uncle Bob and Blake Morn. Uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you have and take us with you in your earphones, wherever you go. And why not give us a review, a five-star review, that's the ones we like, on those podcast apps. Follow us on social meter, me, meter? Follow us on social media and meter. And why not retweet, repost, like, comment, and help us get our content to others who might like it. Anyway, see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>